Rich Roll Podcast. All right, welcome to episode two. Very happy to be back with you guys. Uh, if you listen to episode one, we put it up a couple days ago. It was, it was uh, my wife and I, and uh, it was our first stab at this podcasting thing. Very much an amateur at this whole thing. But uh, I have to say, I'm completely overwhelmed by the uh, early response uh, to the first episode. We got a crazy number of downloads and a whole bunch of great reviews on, uh, on the iTunes page. As soon as it went up, it took a couple days for us to get con- configured and live on iTunes. And uh, actually, just a couple hours ago, iTunes listed the podcast uh, under the health section as a, a new and notable, which is pretty hilarious after one episode. So we're off to a great start. So thank you guys so much for the support. Um, I love doing this and I'm really excited uh, about getting some momentum here, having some great guests and being able to share some great content with you. It's been, uh, it's been cool so far and I'm looking forward to the adventure ahead. So we have a great show for you today. Um, we have Chris Jabe with us. And uh, if you've been following, following me for a little bit, you know who Chris is. Chris is the founder and owner of Common Ground here uh, in Kauai, where we're living. It is a 50-acre, 50, 50 acres? Correct. About 50-acre organic sustainable farm and community with a, a cafe restaurant. Um, it's an amazing place. And Chris has some big ideas uh, about what he wants to do with the property. And he's a, he's a really fascinating guy. He's got a really interesting background. And we're going to get into all of that stuff. So I'm going to bring Chris in in a minute, um, but just a, a couple housekeeping things. Um, like I said, this is very much a, a grassroots kind of organic podcast. We're, we're recording again in a warehouse. So I, I know and I understand and realize that the sound is probably a little bit tinny. We got some feedback from the last one saying, you know, it's echoey or whatever. We're doing the best we can with the equipment that we have. We're, we're looking into a different space that might give a, a little bit of a softer sound. But um, hopefully the content will uh, kind of trump the tef- technical uh, issues that, that come up. And we are also uh, looking into doing videoing and, and live casting, live streaming uh, of the podcast. So that's in the works. We had an amazing dinner here uh, last night at Common Ground where we, we live streamed uh, a presentation that Chris gave and that, and that I gave. And that went over really, really well. So we're going to try to incorporate that into the, into the podcast for those who want to uh, follow along live and and we can make it interactive by answering questions and responding to feedback in real time, which is pretty cool. So anyway, the podcast, of course, is free. It will always be free uh, for you guys, um, but uh, it's not free to produce. There are some costs with bandwidth and hosting and all that kind of stuff. So I did what I said I would never do, which was put a banner ad up on my website. Um, I've got this ugly Amazon banner ad up there right now, uh, which pains me to have. But but, uh, I just signed up with an affiliate program there. So anyway, you know, I know know, most people buy a lot of stuff off Amazon. So if you want to support the show and support what we're doing um, before going to Amazon, why don't you just go to my website, richroll.com, click on the banner ad there, and then buy whatever you're going to buy. It's not going to cost you any more than it would ordinarily, and it'll throw like a few nickels in our bucket uh, so we can pay for the bandwidth and keep it going. That's all. And uh, tell a friend. Tell a friend. I'm super proud to announce 
my next venture, Voicing Change Media. This beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. Okay, so without further ado, Chris Jabe, how you doing, man? Very good. Good, good. It's great to have you here. Good having you here too, man. So Chris is, uh, like I said, a fascinating guy with a very, very interesting background. Um, Chris is an entrepreneur. His background is in uh, internet broadcasting, which is why he has this affinity for the live streaming. <laughs> Slightly. And we're doing some interesting things here together. Uh, Chris, uh, Chris and I have some mutual friends and, and, and got in touch with each other. He reached out to us a, about a month ago and we started talking about some of the stuff that he was looking at doing out here at Common Ground and it seemed to really dovetail nicely into uh, our interests and seemed like it was in really good alignment. So we are here working together on some cool stuff and we're going to talk about that. But first, I want to, I want to talk about um, your background a little bit. So Texan, yeah? Yes, sir. Well, grew up in Minnesota until I was like 12 years old, then moved to Dallas, Texas. And uh, my father was a banker. So he, had, he got a new job at a new bank in Texas, and our family moved there. We had six kids, three boys and three girls, very much a Catholic family. Yeah. And uh, became Texans after about 10, 15 years. <laughs> right, right. So you went to high school in Texas. Correct. Yeah, yeah. I went to Jesuit College Preparatory School. And then I uh, went to USC for college and right. for, for a couple of years. And then went to University of Texas for a couple of years and then took a couple of years off and then actually graded, graduated from University of Texas at Dallas uh-huh. as a result of a, of a wish from my father for me to finish that last class so that I actually got out of college. And so, oh, wait. So, wait a minute. So, you went to USC, but you didn't graduate? I did not. What, what happened there? It just it wasn't right for me. You know, I, basically, I had gone in with the idea that petroleum engineering was something I might want to be doing. And the further I got into it, the more I realized I was not an engineer. And uh, the, everything I did was sort of hard to do. And... After a certain period of time, I realized this was not the the best, you know, really curriculum for me to be involved in. But I also, at the same time, was you know, was wanting to be back in Texas just because it was so much more familiar to me at that stage in life. So I, I moved from you know Los Angeles to Austin, Texas, and uh, I just ended up hanging out with a lot of my my high school friends and sort of had a lot more of a sort of more connected to who I really was kind of a time because I really didn't get or understand the LA culture for me personally quite at that stage in my life wasn't a good fit Mm -hmm. so you kind of hit the pause button totally well I think that that, you know that's interesting and I think a lot of people you know don't do that enough you know we're on this track you got to go from point a to point b as quickly as possible and you know it's certainly a part of my story too is, is sort of you know being on the habit trail a little bit without ever taking time out to get some perspective on what you're doing and you know, I think there's a lot of value in uh, kind of exempting yourself from whatever equation you're in <clears throat> and uh, gaining a little perspective. So, No doubt. You know, I, I feel like that's sort of been just sort of the, 
my personal MO is to sort of always be sort of asking myself, why am I doing what I'm doing? And, and that creates a lot of changes in direction. You know, it's, it's not a consistent, I'm going to do this for the next 20 years of my life kind of path. In some way, it's, it's hard from a business perspective because it's not like you're, you're able to create a three to five year plan and just go on it. But it's really good from a business perspective because what it, what oftentimes what happens when you start a business is you have a vision for where you think it's going to go. But once you start doing it, it's not the place where it really wants to go. And so you sort of learn by doing what really does work best. And for me, it was very easy for me to, once I started doing that stuff, to migrate to stuff that was really working. And, and, and in some way, that's what I was doing at, a, at an early age in my life, you know, sort of asking myself questions about religion, asking myself questions about school, and asking myself, why am I doing, what am I, why am I doing the stuff that where, I'm doing? Where do you think that comes from? Because I think, I think, you know, most people don't do that, you know, or don't do it enough or you know, as much as they should. I, for me, I, I can trace it somewhat to my father because my father was a, a banker and, a, and a, he spent some time in the army, the ROTC. So he came from a really regimented environment. And there was something about that that just was not me. So it was more of a rejection of that. It sort of always made me ask myself, am I a Catholic? Am I a banker? Am I all these things? And I think it was, if he hadn't been so strong-willed in who he was, I think it would have been hard for me to create a distance because I think I would have been more, it might have been easier for me to go along those paths. Mm -hmm. But it made me think almost at the earliest of stages of my ability. You know, I remember when I was, I'd played baseball because he was a baseball player for like the first, you know, from like six years old to about 11. And when I got to be 11, I just said, I ain't going to do this anymore. Even though I liked playing, it was sort of fun, but there was a rejection of that whole way of doing things. Mm -hmm. And And it really has sort of helped me and, 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 uh, and made it so that throughout the course of my life I've been able to get into more of a connection to what it is I really was. And, and even though I might not have the tremendous highs all the time, I've got the quality of life at some level that makes me feel like I'm, I'm living. Right. And I think in, the, in sort of the spiritual context and in the business context to be able to always take a step back, take inventory and try to gain perspective on what you're doing is, is important. And as an entrepreneur in, in, in technology, I mean, you know, technology is moving at this light speed where it's constantly changing and evolving. And, you know, I think anybody who's an entrepreneur in that space, who's not, you know, willing to kind of stop and evaluate, well, is this the <laughs> right direction for this company? I mean, you see it all the time with these startups that they think they're creating, you know, widget A and they realize halfway in like, oh, there's this completely other application for this that's way better. I mean, I think Mm -hmm. we were talking about this before. I think Twitter even started as, I think Jack Dorsey wanted to help public transportation systems Mm -hmm. operate more seamlessly or something like that. It had a very kind of limited, um, you know, application window. and, 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 you know, obviously it's become this incredibly socially influential uh, thing that's occurred that I don't know if he ever anticipated that, but no, just being I, I able didn't. to be flexible. And... I had no idea, really, when you're in the middle of doing it. But as I look back and study biology a little bit more, it's sort of a natural aspect of you know, evolutionary biology, basically. It's a, the cell naturally is looking for these gaps in, in, the, in the planet and places to live and survive and thrive. 
And I think intellectually and sort of consciously and subconsciously, that's what my being has been about, is finding those, those, those gaps and seeing these opportunities and putting myself them, in them in a way that can give me an opportunity to live more original moments. Mm-hmm. You know, things that haven't been done by everybody before. So, <clears throat> more specifically, you, you, you know, getting back to your background, you, you finished college, et cetera. And, uh, I mean, I think most people know of you because of broadcast.com. Um, can you just explain, like, kind of what led up to that and how all of that sort of began from the beginning? Sure. Um, it's pretty much started in 1986. I'd just gotten out of uh, my, my best friend and I had just closed down a car business. And uh, I owed the IRS about a quarter million dollars. And... <sighs> I was trying to figure out how I was going to come up with the kind Wait, of money. All right, hold, hold on a second. <laughs> a car business? How did, you get, how did you get into that kind of deep water? Basically, when my buddy and I were in college at the University of Texas, we had been reading about the, how you could import a car from Germany and because the change in, or the, the values of the currency, you could make an extra 10 grand pretty much on every car you brought in. So we put a, uh, a plan together between ourselves and a, and a third party where we would raise some money and start importing German cars, primarily Porsches, BMWs, and Mercedes, to Dallas, Texas. And uh, we didn't realize at the time, we were 23 years old, that the more business we did, the more money we were losing. So <laughs> you could come into our 20,000-square-foot warehouse in North Dallas and see you know, probably over 70 or 80 late-model and antique, high-quality imported cars. And to a banker that was going to loan us money, he would think, oh, you guys are doing incredible business. Mm-hmm. But the reality was is about 80% of the cars that were in there were cars we'd work on for three or four times, and the opportunity cost and the negative cash flow created by having to do the same job two or three times was significant. And we never really got it because at that stage of, business we weren't even balancing our checkbook we managed our business based on however much money was in our checking account Mm -hmm. and because of the way we worked out our relationships and my limited understanding of banking i was able to arrange uh, a letter of credit with one of the heirs of the firestone fortune and he had guaranteed our our uh credit at the bank so we would basically every week we would get, we'd get notices so how much negative we were like 25 or thirty thousand debt or overdrawn and the bank would clear our checks because basically they were backed up by a, a, a real credit wow. and so how old were you when this was going on 23 to 25 wow so you're 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 basically in you know, an entrepreneur from the get-go. I was just totally winging it. And the, the sort of the, the street sense that we got in two years of the car business really blew away anything I ever got in college or after, really, because you're dealing with the bankers, the attorneys, the accountants, the insurance companies, the, the, the workers, the customers, all in our case, which are sort of questionable, shady characters to start with because we're working in a gray market car as compared to sort of tri- you know, traditional Mercedes-Benz Porsche dealerships. So you, right off the bat, we were learning how to read people and understanding what a real deal was and what wasn't. And one of the best things I got out of that two years was really the, the awareness that if a deal's bad, don't try to make it better. It's bad, let it go. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the main things that hounds a lot of people in business that are kids that are just getting started. You try to make and hope that something that's not working is going to work. 
rather than letting it go and going on to something that really will work. Mm -hmm. Because usually if you're dealing with somebody that's questionable, they're not going to change. And the cost of you to continue to deal with them for an extended period of time is really high. When you look at the your opportunity cost of working on a job that is actually making a positive cash flow, and then you're just the brain damage that comes associated, you know, that's associated with that relationship. Right, like just not being attached to outcomes when... Right, right, right. Just letting it go <clears throat> and moving on. What an amazing experience. I mean, much more valuable, I would imagine, in certain respects than, you know, being in business school. I mean, to have that kind of real-world experience at that level at such a young age. Yeah, my, my best friend and I would always kid about that. We'd say that there, we could have gone to Harvard and got an MBA, but what we got out of two years of being in North Dallas at that time in life, when things were ripping and roaring and getting a chance to learn that A business at that age was invaluable. Mm-hmm. And that sort of led uh, you know, sort of created the opportunity for me to look into what was next. And what was next was the awareness that the overhead is what killed me and killed us. We couldn't manage the costs associated with a 20,000 square foot warehouse and 15 to 20 employees that we didn't know how to manage and all the other fixed and non-fixed expenses associated with that. So the next business I started ended up becoming a business that I could run on my own. It was called Promotional Radios. And what we did is we got like palm-sized versions of uh, basketballs, soccer balls, and baseballs and got a company in Hong Kong to put AM radios inside of them. And we would get, uh, we'd like put a Dallas Cowboy or a Texas Ranger logo on one side and a Dr. Pepper or whatever Sport Mart logo on the other side. And they'd give them away as promotional items at the games. Gotcha. And that's sort of what led to broadcast.com because when people were giving these radios at these events, they couldn't hear an AM radio inside a, an arena, for example, because of all the metal and concrete. So they, we noticed that everybody's trying to listen to the radio, but they couldn't get a very good signal. And we started thinking, shoot, there's huge value in these arenas for people to listen to a live broadcast, an FM quality broadcast of these events. And we sort of took that, in, or I, I put, took that a next step and started thinking, shoot, the value for this broadcast is really outside the stadium. It's the whole metropolitan area. I was, had come from Minnesota, and, and I could never listen to a Minnesota Viking or Minnesota Twin game living in Texas unless it was a nationally broadcast game. Right. I mean, for a lot of people listening, they're, they're, you know, they have a hard time fathoming this in our internet age, but there was a day not so long ago where it's true. You know, simple things that we take for granted now you know, just were not possible. Not even possible. Right. So, <clears throat> so the idea was born. And when you say we, is this the same partner that you were in the car business with? Well, I, I say we loosely. Basically, it was, it was my father and I and, uh, and my partner that was in the car business had made a small investment. And he had helped me, but he was on his own path. He ended up uh, working as an entry-level accountant for uh, Chuck E. Cheese. And after, here we are now, 20 years later, he's the number three guy at Chuck E. Cheese, (laughs) which is a trip to see that we'd come from what was that place in time to this place in time and sort of migrated in a way that was really sort of good for both of us. Yeah, interesting. So so we're talking right now, what what is this, like 1989 or something? 86, and promotional radios was 89. Uh And then uh, it really became apparent to me in a short period of time that there was I couldn't control that market. It was just as easy for anybody to go to Hong Kong, source that product, and sell it to Major League Baseball, the NBA, or NFL, 
at a better price than I could get because I couldn't do the volume deals. I didn't have the relationships, et cetera. So in a relatively short period of time, I pretty much said that's not going to work, but there probably is a business in redistributing these signals rather than getting locked into the hardware. Mm -hmm. So I started doing the research to try to figure out what it would take to acquire the right to redistribute all the Major League Baseball, NBA, NFL games, and college football, baseball, basketball, hockey, et cetera games and make them available in local markets using uh, satellite spectrum. And uh, the idea was basically to take the satellite spectrum that I, I was at the time working for affiliated computer systems. And, and one of the main things I was doing there was writing proposals for uh, outsourcing contracts where they would go into big companies and say, what, you know, we'll take over your data center and run all your back, backhaul data around the country. And they were all, so I, it was really easy to understand the cost of distributing data globally. Mm-hmm. It was like, and it really was practically nothing. For a really small amount of money, I could distribute, you know, in one six megahertz television spectrum, 400 channels of high quality, well, at the time, you know, four to 10 kilohertz bandwidth uh, AM signals in a way that you could, you could, you know, in real time distribute 400 signals anywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. So I started doing the math behind it and tried to figure out a way to receive those signals using the, at the time, PCS telephone network and making it so that you could basically punch in a code on your phone and listen to anything over a sort of a free frequency that we were going to set up. Wow. So then, but not too long after that, the internet then came the along. the internet comes along and, and everything. And the need to do any of that infrastructure just went out the window. Mm-hmm. And all I had to do is acquire broadcast rights, which is what I was doing at the time anyway. And that's when I met Mark Cuban. Mm-hmm. So, and I want to get into that, but first of all, I mean, the thing, the sort of theme that's rising to the surface in these ventures and in, in hearing you talk about it is this real scrappy nature of going after it, right? Like, of, I mean, just seeking out these opportunities and not being afraid and pursuing them as a young person, really. I mean, there had to be a lot of cold calling involved and oh, knocking no on a lot of doors. No doubt, no doubt. And that's really what made it work or not work, really. For, and that was the thing that as I look back on it, that... It was uh, it was is what made any, it makes anything work is your ability to communicate with your market and understand what the opportunities are and aren't. I mean, f- for example, when I was trying to produce uh, uh, an inf- you know create this broadcast infrastructure in a local market, I went to the FCC in Washington D.C. and got the right to create an experimental license in Austin, Texas, to test this out. And to do that, I had to go to some of the major hardware manufacturers that could make phones that would do this stuff and get them to consider making this phone for me. And needless to say, I'm a, you know, at the time a shoot, 27, 28-year-old kid with an idea. There wasn't a lot of people who were interested. But that said, I, I learned how to communicate with those people after trying to, you know, talking to 70, 80, or 100 of these guys over a certain period of time. And that that seasoning and that experience in communication is what really gave me a skill set to almost describe anything and to, to position it in a way people could understand it and possibly do something about it. Right. Interesting. And so, all right, so Mark Cuban comes into your life. Like, how does, how does that happen? I mean, uh, he wasn't, you know, he wasn't Mark Cuban then, though, no, right? he like, wasn't. <laughs> well, in, in, in his own, in his own well, way. He, well, he, he probably, you know, He was still Mark Cuban. Mark Cuban. <laughs> <laughs> right. And that's, that part's, I'm sure, never going to change. Uh, what was, what made, what put Mark and I together was his friend uh, that he'd gone to college with named Todd Wagner. And, mm-hmm. 
Todd. Who's still his business partner today. That's true. That's true. Todd, I had met because my girlfriend at the time was in a course called Running from the Law. And Todd, was in the, he was an attorney that was trying to get out of the legal profession and looking for something else to do. And the uh, person that ran this uh, seminar and this sort of workshop put Todd in touch with me through my girlfriend. And we just... So we started talking about it. He said, I, I'm, I'm interested, but I, I'm making a trip. I'm just leaving you know, my law practice now, the, the company I've been working for. I'm going to be back in a couple of months. But before I leave, I'm going on this trip to Australia. I want you to meet Mark. I think he's the kind of guy that could, could make this work for us. And what was Mark doing at the time? I mean, this is 1990 by now or something? It's 1994, and it's... Uh, it's, uh, it's basically roughly early November 1994. Mm-hmm. And he had just sold a company called Microsolutions. And I don't know, it was like I don't know, 8, 10, 12 million dollars that he'd recently put in his pocket. And he was looking for things to do. I think mostly he was seeing himself more as like a, a venture capitalist and just sort of seeing what deals were good. And once I started describing what it was we were doing, he goes, within five minutes, he goes, I'm in. And I go, I just it surprised me because up to that, I had probably given that pitch, you know, 120 times or, mm-hmm. or more, and nobody said they were in. But what, <laughs> was it, what was it that you were looking for? Was it just cash? I was trying to raise, I was asking for $750,000 for 49% of the company. Mm-hmm. And he said, I'm in, but he didn't qualify as to what that was. And I was just expecting that we could work something out. I personally wasn't overly concerned with the dollar amounts, the percentages, because the key to me at the time was just to move the ball forward. You know, I, I didn't, I probably couldn't say this clearly at the time, but I just wanted to get something going because I'd been working on this kind of stuff for a long time and I had never really got that bigger deal going. So I would have taken pretty much any deal. What, what ended up happening was about two months later, I went back to Mark because he had, had written me a check for $10,000 that said, you're $10,000, 2% of the company. And uh, after this big contract fell through, he said, I'm out. And so uh, I, when Todd came back, he started working with me. We went back to Mark because we had to figure out what this 2% was or wasn't. And it wasn't going to be very easy for me to go to third parties and raise money with this, what seemed to be a hanging per ownership percentage. Right. So after haggling with Mark for about three months, uh, we, Todd and I went over to, to Mark's house and Mark said, you know what, you guys, I'm going to do this with or without you. Todd, I, I, I want you. There's things that you can do. You know, you're an operator, you're an attorney, you're, you're CPA. Uh, Chris, I really don't need your skill set that much. I really don't. You can sort of go on and do whatever it is you want to do. Mm-hmm. And Todd didn't really feel very good about that. And the, sort of the backstory to that was Todd had only worked with me for about three months, but I would recognized really quickly what Todd was doing and how he could organize the contractual side of what the company was. And he, under, he really understood the business pieces very well. So I, after three months of work with even though I'd been doing this for like four years on my own, I go, Todd, you know, whatever we, we create, we'll split evenly. And it was like, and I think that bond and that, that gift and that, that confidence in our relationship Made it would you know if I would have tra- treated it differently and said Todd you get five percent for doing X I think it would have been easier for him maybe to go off on his own and do whatever right. but I think it created a, a quality of a relationship that made us feel like we were working together and, he, and that night he pretty much went back to Mark and said I'm not going to do this without Chris and this is a deal I think we could do with Chris mm-hmm. 
And it was sort of unusual. I mean, basically, it was a deal where they both split 90% of the company, and I got 10 for a company that I've been working with for four and a yeah, half, five a, years. It's an interesting conundrum. I mean, you know, in certain respects, it was a cut and run, and, and there, was no, there wasn't enough. I mean, was the, the intellectual property not proprietary enough to prevent him from just taking your idea and running off with it on Clearly his own? Clearly not. So. I mean, he <clears throat> could, with the resource he had, he could do what I was doing. And right. he, with especially with Todd sitting right next to him, he could he could make it happen. Yeah, and it, it was at the time it was it really needed financial resources to blow it up. Right. And because of right at this time when we're having these conversations, the real audio player came out that made it now. So we didn't even have to build the audio software that made it possible to listen to sound on the internet. It was just a question of executing on that platform that already existed. So here you are, and you have. You go from having 98% of something with Mark Cuban to having 100% of probably what might have been nothing without Mark Cuban to then having 10% of something back with Mark Cuban in you know, a very short period of time. That's exactly right. And, is, and, and that night that night when that was all going on, I was, I was, I was good with it. I was you were saying so you I was gonna, like going insane thinking I'm getting screwed. Not, and well, I'm that getting, night you know, I was pretty much going to my plan B saying, you guys go do it. I'm going to go work on my own. I really wasn't that worried about it. It was really Todd sitting in the middle of the deal and understanding uh-huh. the pieces and parts and calling me late at night and saying, we'll give you $2,500 a month, 10% of the company or more if you want to work more, but not report to Mark in any way, shape or form. Basically, you can have your autonomy. At the time, I was living on $1,200 a month, so 25 seemed like I was like <laughs> raking it in. And to have 10% of something that those guys were going to run off and do, you know, it felt okay because at the time, I had this idea called Internet uh, E-Ads, which is electronic advertising, and it was the first fee-per-click advertising company on the Internet. So I would already sort of was working with some software programmers to develop that. Mm-hmm. And this would give me the autonomy to go blow that up, which I felt near term had a lot more cash potential. And that goes back to what you were saying before about like, all right, well, just not being attacked. Like I did this and now I'm moving, I'm being flexible and now I'm going to move in this direction. Truly. It's all good. I mean, I really give the majority of the reason this all happened to meditation. It was like about two years before that, a guy walked into my house and I could sense his peace. And it, for me, it's like, something's different here. And I go, what, what are you doing? And he goes, he, he basically told me how to watch my breath for five minutes at a time. And I would, I would, if I look back at my life, I would say, is that singular moment that really gave me the consciousness to let go? You know, basically that's all you're doing in meditation is you have a thought come into your mind, you learn to release it, release the emotional charge related to it, and and basically create your own self-identity and not be lost in all the craziness that your mind strums up. Right. I mean, I think so much of life boils down to how we react to situations. And, you know, a lot of times we just, you know, our buttons get pushed and we just react and we don't even... We don't even consciously know what we're saying. We're just sort of reacting to it based on some program that we're running that was, you know, plugged in by our parents or our genetic makeup or what have you. And then you're off and running on some path that maybe you didn't even think through. And, you know, when I got sober um, and was in early sobriety, I had a, I had a sponsor who used to always say to me, you never want to go through like an intense period in your life, whether it's a, a good thing that you're experiencing or a bad thing, and look back on it and go, 
I wonder what that would have been like if I was like really spiritually fit. Like, I wonder what that experience, like maybe you, you know, you can go through a great experience and be grouchy the whole time and be a jerk to hang out with, or you can enjoy it and take it in, or, you know, you can react to situations differently. And I think that that's a pretty crucial thing. Like, let's say that guy had not come over to your house and you had never been exposed to this meditation technique or hadn't taken to it or what have you. And here you are in this pretty intense business situation where suddenly this company that, you know, you founded and were fostering was pulled out from underneath you. I mean, you could have, nobody would have put it past you to, you know, have a knockdown drag out with this guy. Uh, yeah, in another and it could have imploded life. the totally. entire thing totally. and then you could have ended up with zero and whatever. And your Clearly. Life would be, your life today would be, you know, maybe, I mean, I don't, who knows what it would be like, but it would probably be different in certain respects. No doubt. I mean, it's interesting. When I started meditating, I stopped, stopped drinking as well. And mm-hmm. It just sort of changed every part of my life. But you're spot on. You're, you know, I mean, the reality is, is by letting go of all that stuff, it gave me an opportunity and still, you know, there's the chance of me sitting here today would have been greatly diminished because I could very easily see me getting an attorney, getting some family money together and suing them because I thought that I could, you know, collect on it. And that could have been a long drawn out lawsuit that really never got me anywhere. Yeah, and you could have surrounded yourself with a lot of people who, who would have supported that and said, that's what you should do. Totally. Right. And matter my best friends at the time were saying I was crazy. You worked for four years and something and you got 10% of it. Go see those guys. Right. And so, all right. But at the time, and now you're sitting on this 10% of this thing. I mean, did you have any idea like where this was headed or how big this thing was going to be? You know, I'd pretty much written it off, to be honest with you. I, I believed it had potential, but I had no idea what the scale was or what I'd really end up with just because of the way those deals go. And I knew that when I, you know, when we signed the paperwork that actually got me that percentage, it was like spring of 19, like late spring of 1995. And I knew it was years before there was going to be any cash out. And when at that stage of my life, when you're looking in terms of years, you don't really put it on the balance sheet. You just sort of, for me personally, I was just hoping something worked out and not betting. I wouldn't, at the time, if you would have said, you think you're going to get something out of it, I would have thought it was a 50 50 chance of getting anything at all. I think what, what, what I was really excited about was this opportunity to pursue electronic advertising because I could see the ability tomorrow afternoon to generate a return on that. And it, to me, was the most exciting thing because it was almost like magic. I also often had these dreams when I was a kid of just going to the mailbox and picking up checks. <laughs> Basically, have designed a company and a vision and a program that made it so easy for me to, all we'd have to do is basically go to my mailbox and pick up money. And that's what eads ended up becoming. Basically, I got a programmer to write a program, and then I and my, I would have people that I would pay contract basically to go out and find websites, and we'd put, you know, at the time, because it was early internet advertising, I was getting the biggest names in the internet in software and in media to, that were buying advertising from me mm-hmm. because I was doing something that was much more easily verifiable. You know, fee per click is compared to impression-based advertising. So you're, okay, sorry, go ahead. But anyway, I'm just sort of saying it was, you know, from Microsoft to CBS Sportsline to, uh, you know, Adobe to, you know, go right down the list. Any of the biggest ESPN, 
uh, sports companies and other software developing companies were buying advertising for me. And at the, in its heyday, you know, 97, 98, we were making like $400,000 a month right. just from po- an all positive cash flow, which at the time was more than broadcast.com was doing. So yeah. I really felt that was the opportunity. Right. So you're all wrapped up in this and excited about it and not really thinking about broadcast.com. And then, and then what happens? And then now, now go fast forward a couple more years. You know, eads continues to do well, but when when broadcast uh, in in July of nineteen ninety eight is when broadcast dot com went public, and we were in, I was in a lockup for you know six months, so I couldn't sell my stock, and it had the the single highest day gain at the time in the history of the New York Stock Exchange for an IPO. Right, that's what I think. You know, nowadays it seems like there's a huge IPO every month, or right, <clears throat> right, and we're right. used to these big tech IPOs, but. Back at the time, and I remember when this happened, it was a really big deal. It was really one of the first tech companies to go really big. I mean, it was the most successful IPO in history, At the right? time. I mean, at the at time. The time. It was crazy. And it, a lot of it, for me, I believe it was the idea and the quality of relationships that Todd Wagner had put together. I mean, if you, if you could sort of put yourself back at that place in time and to, to know that the cable companies at the time were trying to conceive of the 500-channel cable TV network and figure out a way to bring those parts together in a way that would make it accessible, this was like the 5,000-channel, you know, anything in real time international network yeah, at lower cost. Right. So it's like, it was pretty easy for people that really didn't know too much about this to get their head around what it potentially could become. But what Todd had done really well and that we had worked on a little bit even when I was there is we had, you know, some of our major investors were the biggest companies at the time that were connected to these kind of issues. I mean, Motorola was there, Yahoo was there, Intel was there. I mean, with those guys, partners and owners in broadcast.com, it made... When the stock was being offered, it created the credibility that made it go from you know a hundred million dollar company to a billion dollar company. That's, yeah, it's crazy. So wait, so how long? So that was in ninety ninety eight ninety eight. Okay, and so the so lockup like three year period um, leading before the IPO, where you were, where I was just sort of yeah, I wasn't even basically for two years, maybe two and a half years before it went public. I wasn't even working there. I was just for about a year and a half, two years after 1995, I was training people acquire broadcast rights so that they, so basically anybody that I was working with could learn how to to call professional sports teams or a radio station that owns the rights, they were initially the audio rights, but eventually the video rights and get the right to retransmit them on the internet and share the income reproduce uh, 50-50. Okay. So IPO... I mean, this, this had to be like a... Cr- I mean, what is going through your mind when this happens? Well, once the IPO happened, it was like, needless to say, it was just a freak of nature beyond a freak of nature. Because even at the time, I never... When the IPO happened, I wasn't expecting much. Then once the IPO happened and we saw what it was worth, then it was like, is it going to make it another six months at these valuations? Because if, if I couldn't sell my stock until right. January. So the bottom could have just dropped off. And I expected and, right, that at yeah. some basic level. Because to me, you know, I don't know if you guys, how many people remember, but back at the time, the, most of these companies were getting valuations based on page views. Right, right. They weren't getting valuations based on positive cash flow. So the, the amount of cash flow that this company had in relation to its valuation was totally fractional. And if the world was ever going to change in that six months prior to it, it could, and it went to a reasonable valuation, 
then my my equity interest would be, you know, who knows, a tenth, a hundredth of what <laughs> so, it was. So are you waking up every day and, and you know, checking it to see where it's at? In one, in one hand, I, I had sort of brushed it off because for the first four months, I didn't even watch it. Mm-hmm. But after, for the, like the last two months of the lockup, I was watching it regularly right. just because it's like, there was one day that they actually halted trading because it was like the... It had went up like 96 points. It was like the largest single-day gain in the history of a stock on the New York Stock mm-hmm. Exchange. And it, and that day, you know, if you did the math on my shares, it was like off the charts. And for me, it was like as I started doing the math on other people that were big in the tech world and seeing what this money was in relation to that, I was like, this is incredible. And if it holds on for another two months, it's going to be a, you know, a gift from the God and beyond. So that's what happened, basically. You know, the numbers sort of stayed the same for that remaining two months. But the day that we had the, that day that my lockup expired and I was at Goldman Sachs in downtown Dallas getting ready to sell my shares into the market, they had the Argentinian peso crisis. And the stock, which was at 250 bucks that, or 220 bucks that morning, went to 100 bucks. Oh, my God. So, so, so at the time, we don't know if it's going to go to five bucks. Right. And, or if it's going to come back to two and a quarter at the end of the day. So it took, it was a, talk about, you know, just a weird twist on the whole so you're thing. All, it's, it's, it had been steady over those last couple of yeah, weeks. Yeah. And so you're like, all right, I'm yeah. out. I'm going to go, I'm going to sell, I'm going to cash out. It's and then it's like half. Good. It's like, oh, I lost half of everything. <laughs> <laughs> but so thank God I just had, I, you know, sort of was listening to, you know, my father and others that were just saying, have patience, markets change. Don't don't feel like this is the last day of a market. So I, I sold probably, I don't know, I'd probably say one twentieth of what I owned that uh-huh. day. And at the time it was still obviously more money than I'd ever had uh, that it was, you know, in in my pocket at one point in time. So it was it was an incredible day in the life. And then about three months later I sold the remaining eighty percent and then sold the rest of it like in the middle of the summer of nineteen ninety nine, which is about nine months before the internet crashed. Oh wow. And right. so when the internet crash happened, I was 100% out and pretty much willing to shut down e-ads because I didn't want the brain damage of dealing with an internet advertising company. Mm-hmm. And it was going to be like 10 times harder to make e-ads work because the internet, you know, stock bubble had burst. Right. So, wow. So that's very fortunate. You had been completely cashed out before the crash. And so here you are and you're sitting on, you know, more money than you probably ever imagined that you would Clearly. ever get. I mean, it's 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 really a, an incredible story, you know, to have this happen in your life. And I think that that this is really what I wanted to, you know, talk to you about and, and what I find fascinating, which is, you know, with this comes obviously opportunities and a myriad of decisions that and directions that you could take with your life. I mean, there the whole world is open to you. You could do anything you want, right? And I think most people in your situation would kind of go the the Gordon Gecko route or the empire building route. You know, they'd go and they'd say, hey, I've, I've got the golden touch. You know, let's do it again. Or like, where's the next deal? And, you know, it's an aphrodisiac. And I'm sure that, you know, the sort of adrenaline and the kind of rush that comes with that experience is, you know, very intoxicating, right? Like when's the, when am I going to experience that again? And as humans, we're always like, it's never enough, right? Like, oh, that was good. Like, well, let's do that again. Or how can I make, how can I do that? And even better the next time it's going to be, you know, and then you're off, right? You're off running on this, 
this this route or whatever and and you know you see people do that a lot and that would i think that probably would have been the expected course for you to take is to yeah, go it's, off it's, and, it's really interesting the psychology <clears throat> that happens in that environment because you're thinking at one level it's like i got enough to live on for my the rest of my life why would i go keep doing more of that same stuff but most people do and and, I, and you know what it is or what it was for me i i sense that same energy needless to say i you know i was super competitive as a kid you know i just we i had my next door neighbor that all we did every day, every waking moment of our day was making up games and competing. It could be anywhere from, you know, a, a new way of playing ping pong to playing a new way of, you know, creating a golf course around his yard or playing football with some friends. Bottom line, it was all about competition. And, and the reality is I sort of felt that same energy. It's exactly what you're describing. You know, it's like, okay, I've got X. I want to make it 10x. Right. I mean, because there's always somebody who has more, right? Mm-hmm. And you're probably like, well, that guy over there did it. And, you know, well, look what he did. Like, I want to see if I can beat no him doubt. now and all of that. No doubt. So that, that was, it was something I felt. And it was something that was you know, definitely part of me. And I, 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 in some way, took a half step in that direction by moving to Santa Barbara, California, or actually Montecito. And buying a, a huge house that was beyond anything I would have ever imagined <laughs> as a kid. And, and I you know, bought an interest in a jet and I, uh, good for you. And I did those things, you know, I bought all the nice cars and, and then, you know, it was weird. You know, I was in, in, in bed one night with, with my wife and we were talking and, and we we're, you know, it's like, what is this? You know, is, is this, is this making us, are we happier is this happiness at some level because we have these things? And it's like I would have people come over and I would be, it was interesting how I, initially I was showing them the property as I was, as though I was really excited and wanted to offer it because I so wanted them to experience the feeling of seeing it. And, but after a really short period of time, I almost felt bad because it's like I really wasn't getting anything out of it. And I felt I felt almost sort of sick inside. It was weird. It's something just came over me that made me realize this, this is not an endpoint, and it, it wasn't something that really made me a healthier human being. Mm-hmm. And and it's like right then, just the world started switching, and that everything started going off inside my mind. It was like I need to get out of this place. I need mm-hmm. to get into something that's more real, more grounded. My wife was great because she was right there with me. She didn't need more stuff. She didn't really need anything. And she was an incredibly, she was like the, the ideal grounding instrument because she was right there. She wanted simpleness and peace. And actually the beauty of Kauai was inspiring for her, like nothing you could imagine. So we had actually, we started traveling around the country and in, in different parts of the Caribbean trying to find the ideal place to live. And after going to the Caribbean and to you know, different parts of uh, Mexico and to uh, different parts of you know the California stuff. It's like once in different parts of the Hawaiian Island, we got to the North Shore of Kauai, and it's like it became this little six-mile stretch between Kilauea and Princeville. It like to me just became God's gift to the most beautiful part of the world mm-hmm. because of the the natural beauty and just the the way the weather comes through this place. It's real. I mean, it's sometimes it's a stormy North Shore of, of any you know, like any coast and and any small island in a remote part of the world. And there was, there's that, and then there's the community that, that, that's represented on this North Shore of Kauai. You know, it's like 
there's a there's an authentic authenticity here that I really was able to feel right off the bat. And it's it's got the full range, you know. In some way, it's it's sort of real. In some way, it's sort of rugged. In some way, it's very native Hawaiian. In some ways, and it was it was to me it was much more, you know, an opportunity for learn more about myself than living in Montecito, California, where it was so much more who you were and what you were as compared to what you were really doing and what it is you were about. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean that's. Really cool. I mean, you sort of, you know, started to build the gilded cage a little bit and, and had a course correct. I mean, you know, other people, I think, would have said, well, yeah, I'm still, like, why am I not happy? Like, I have all this money and I, I have the, you know, the, the house and the cars and all that kind of stuff. Well, oh, it's because, you know, I don't have that car, you know. Let me, let me, I'll get that car and then that'll fix me or, you know, I'll get this and then, then I'll feel better about myself. But you had the insight to say you know, chasing that dragon is not taking me to the best place. Yeah, it really didn't take too much to feel that the more stuff I got, I wasn't getting happier. And it was interesting. You know, right off the bat, I was getting a lot of stuff. And and it it really became apparent that I would have that new stuff, whatever it was, whether it was a new car or a new computer or a new phone or whatever it was. And within a week and a half, the coolness of having that new thing was gone. Right. And But I still had the stuff. And then I started to realize, you know what? Not only do I have the stuff, I now have this, because of my family history and values in some way, I now I have the obligation to maintain it. So I really quickly became sort of like this, I was possessed by my possessions. Mm-hmm. And I had, to, I had a certain amount of obligation, I felt, and still do, you know, to maintaining what I own because I don't want to waste. There's something really genetically clear inside me that when I waste, I feel a lot of pain at whatever level. So it was really interesting how quickly that awareness came and then the decision to sort of just get to the most basic things you need. And if you only have those things, those are things you want to maintain Mm -hmm. rather than having all that other stuff that's very superfluous. It takes a heck of a lot of brain damage just to keep track of, much less to keep it in a good working order. And I call that the burden of the rich because there's so many wealthy people out there and they, if if anything is out of place in their house or if there's a scratch on their car or if the maid hasn't done their laundry just right, their day's upside down. Exactly, yeah. I mean, just just living in Los Angeles, I'm exposed to, you know, quite a few rather wealthy and successful people and you know, I can assure you that it's not a recipe for happiness. You know, not all of them, but, you know, a fair number of them are relatively miserable people or fair to middling. And, but the common theme that I always hear from them is, yeah, they become a slave to their possessions. It's all about kind of holding on to what they have and being, you know, the fear that comes with losing it and trying to maintain it. And, and suddenly they're, you know, they spend all their time managing other people who are upkeeping their stuff and it it becomes a full-time job. And, you know, they think like, oh, I, you know, my life's going to be easy and simple now and actually just becomes complicated with all that stuff. And I I think the um, good, you know, that's, that's Western culture's export to the third world, really. When you really look at what we what we are exporting today is this consumption lifestyle. We are trying to through media and through all the subconscious and conscious ways we market America more or less, and you know Europe in some ways many very much in the same boat, but doesn't seem to be quite to the as extreme a con- as a concept as a lifestyle. Yeah, we it's like the life. more stuff you have, the more successful you are, and 
the more happy you are and the more knowledgeable you are mm-hmm. because you've learned how to acquire vast amount of things. And even if you've gone, you know, 190% in debt to acquire more stuff and you have zero income to live on, the perception is that you have all this stuff, so you've figured it out. When reality is, is you're almost like the, you're in the government of the United States. You've created so much debt. It's questionable is that whether you're going to be able to get out of it without printing money or declaring a bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. And what is that life like, you know, as compared to one that really doesn't need that stuff? And I don't think the government can, wants us to think that thought because they need big, big business to work. If we decide to stop buying, the system stops. That's completely predicated on consumption lifestyle and consumerism. I mean, you know, the... The famous George Bush, you know, quote, you know, go out and shop, everything's great, you know, that kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. So, all right, so, so you, you discover the North Shore of Kauai and, and you have this epiphany that this is where you want to relocate to and settle to. And, and I, I'd be remiss if I didn't bring this up, but it's, it's so fascinating to me. I don't know, have you been following, uh, we didn't talk about this, uh, this the sort of unfolding saga of John McAfee right now. Yes. And so, so, yes. so this is a very, very fascinating, interesting thing that's occurring right now. So John McAfee, who's a, who's a software entrepreneur, he developed McAfee virus software, incredibly successful guy um, who <clears throat> is, I guess he's retired or he sold his company. I'm not sure exactly, but you know, a very, very wealthy guy. Uh, relocated to Belize and and sort of built this compound in a in, in a in a tropical paradise and has been living out his life down there. I think he divested all of his money out of the United States, or I mean, he literally has been living down there in this compound. And essentially, from what I can gather, and I'm not completely read up on everything, but I just heard an interview with him the other day on on the Joe Rogan podcast, and I've been reading his blog, reading John McAfee's blog, is, you know, there's some evidence that he's kind of going off the rails right now, and they don't know whether he's experimenting with uh, designer drugs that he's creating at his house, and, you know, bath salts, there's some indication that maybe he may or may not be doing, and he's got a, you know, young girlfriend, and his neighbor turned up dead and there's some suspicion that he might've had something to do with it. And he's claiming that the Belize government is out to get him and that this is a giant conspiracy. And long story short is he's essentially on the lam right now and he's running from the law. Uh, But meanwhile, he's tweeting and blogging in real time and he has enough technological savvy to cover his tracks and conceal his IP address. But it's, it's, it's pretty amazing because, and to bring it back to this conversation, to see a guy who, who you know, I don't know, maybe everything he, that McAfee is saying is true and people are out to get him. I have no, I have no idea. All I know is what I've heard. Um, but it would seem like there's some instability there and a, and a definite imbalance in kind of how he's living his life and, and all the drama that is, that is sort of circling him right now. Uh, and, and when you see a guy like that who, you know, kind of has everything and we have this notion, this American dream, this idea that, hey, you know, in America you can make it big and anything's possible and, you know, everybody's got a startup and, and, and wants to, you know, cash out and this idea of moving to a tropical paradise and, you know, I'll just sit at the beach and, you know, have my house and live out the rest of my days in peace and solitude. I mean, how many people actually do that and how many people actually do that and do it? 
so that they're happy, you know, and don't go off the rails or become imbalanced or, you know, create some kind of, you know, insane drama that, that is unfolding. So as I'm watching this and I'm contrasting McAfee with the choices that you've made, and it's, it's fascinating, really. So you come out here and, you know, what is the idea? I mean, was, it, was part of that the idea of like, I'm going to, you know, be out here, I'm going to simplify, I'm going to, you know, I'll, I'll be by well, the beach. And- well, a lot of it was, again, sort of back to meditation, was what, I, what was coming up for me is I have to get out of the environment that I was in to find myself. And I, Kauai ended up being a great place for that. And I sort of felt that early on coming here because the natural vibration here is so strong, you know, that you can be here for a relatively short period of time and go to any of these beaches or just, you know, hang out near a waterfall or just sit out on a quiet night and feel, feel the energy of this land. And I, I definitely didn't feel that at any level. You know, I couldn't probably... I lived in the same house in, in Dallas, Texas for probably 20 years. I couldn't tell you where the sun was rising or the moon was setting. Mm-hmm. You know, I can tell you the cycle of the moon here. I can tell you when the high tides are going to happen. I can, you know, I can tell you the time of year because of where the sun sets. I can tell you what's happening to, you know, today and tomorrow somewhat by the way the winds are blowing today. You know, there's just these, these aspects of connection to nature that are almost rudimentary here that when you're sitting in the middle of a city, they're not even on the radar. So that piece was, was really interesting. But the, the thing that was, was, was it really moved me was just the idea of getting my head out of the mainland energy and getting it into a space where it wasn't so influenced by all that stuff that I was part of it. And that, that was the, the piece that I sort of held on to in the back of mind and was motivating me to come out and just see what it was like to be in the middle of nowhere for a while and see what effect that would have on me and just play the game, see what happened. Because I felt worst case scenario, I'd learn more about myself. Best case scenario, I might do things that I'm really excited about that are fulfilling me. It's in the deepest level of my psychological and spiritual self. Mm -hmm. So you move out here. So it it, it started really as an experiment. Did you come out here like temporarily to spend some time or? Yeah, initially we came out here just sort of saying and we'd go back and forth. And then we came out, we came back after being here like for about six months and we looked at each other and said, why would we go back? What, what are we going back to? It's like, this is so, you know, exponentially better from what we are giving to ourselves and what we're giving to our kids at the time my wife was pregnant. It became a really simple decision. So at the time though, even though we decided to have our child and start living here, in the back of my mind, I was thinking it was going to be a three or four year kind of a run and just sort of see and sort of play it out. But then one thing led to another and it was really, after a relatively short period of time, I felt myself sort of almost like a tree with every passing week, with every passing month, I was rooting in. I was sort of becoming more connected, whether it was to the community that I was living in, just to the land that I was living in, the connection with myself. There's so many parts of sort of my natural biologi- biological self and then the natural world itself that I just was becoming more aware of, that it made me sort of now think it's, it would be really hard to move. It's sort of, but at the same time, I see the value in balance too because it's almost like you have to go to appreciate what's here. It's like, and it's true, even on the most you know, simple ways of looking at life, you know, for example, when you're staring at something, you can't really see it, but you have to look away to look back. 
and and it's that yeah, they even you know train pilots to look that way to be able to to see what's in front of them better and i feel like the more i go and spend a relatively short period of time in what i'd call higher energy cities around the world and then come back here it's really it's sort of it, it creates a, a connection to you know those things that make me understand those the proportions and the reality and sort of more of an identity around the pieces and parts that make this life unique and what make me the way I am. Right. I mean, you know, this area, the North Shore of Kauai, it's it's a it's a really special place. And for those of you who've who haven't had the opportunity to visit here, it's very different from the other Hawaiian islands. Uh, in in its terrain and in its energy field, I feel. I mean it's a very lush you know, green, really, you know, tropical foresty kind of area. I mean, if you've been to the Big Island, you know, most people go to Kona. It's, you know, lava rock and very arid and uh, and Maui is very populated. And obviously, you know, Oahu is almost like a, you know, a mainland city. Kauai is very untouched in certain respects and and, and the mountain ranges and, and the sort of overgrown uh, fields are so... Uh, remarkable in their dramatic <laughs> appearance and, and colors. It's very vivid. And it's all, I always joke, it's like, it's almost like you could just see King Kong, you know, walking right out of the jungle. I mean, it's really quite, quite remarkable. And I think that, that you're correct. I mean, the energy field here is really strong. Like I can, I can feel it. And that, that doesn't mean it's always good. Like it goes dark and heavy as much as it can be no doubt. light and good. You the know? pendulum like it's, swings. It's, you it, know? It, it definitely, you this, can't have one without the other. And you need them both. Mm-hmm. And I think that's sort of the missing you know, people think, oh, I've got everything or whatever. I'm not talking about me in particular, but when you have everything you want, then oh, all of a sudden life should be on this straight path towards upward happiness arc. That is so not connected to reality. Life, as in everything, goes through cycles of ups and downs, and you need the downs to know the ups. If you had nothing but ups, you would never appreciate anything other than more up, and you'd eventually, in my mind, die just because you'd, you know, like I think what happens a lot of times with people into drugs and whoever else they just want more of a high all the time and at some point they just they die no i mean i don't think it, no one's walked the earth that just you know had highs all the time it, that, that worked out work and, that, that and that's not what happiness is i mean what is happiness i mean happiness isn't you know sort of this this adrenaline rush or this you know crazy enthusiasm 24 hours a day i mean it, it doesn't work like that i think happiness is a much more complex thing you know it's it's, it's a, a range you know it's, it's unique to an individual but it's a range of life for me personally it's a range of experiences related to those those times in life that you're aware enough to feel them at whatever level they are they aren't really good or bad they're just things that are happening and if you can be open enough to feel them with an open heart and feel them with the depth of your being you've had an experience that's unique but usually our mind is so busy with stuff we don't want to feel we don't want to look. We don't want to know. Well, we live in a system that's not designed to encourage that. We live in a system that is, encourages us to consume as a recipe for happiness rather than accumulate experiences. Exactly. You know, I mean, that, I, I mean it's, it's completely backwards, in my opinion. Yeah. Or not backwards, but, but um, the emphasis is on the wrong side of that equation I think. well yeah just to think that you can have more stuff and that you are going to be happier because you have more stuff i think there's a there i was reading this thing was saying once you get beyond a certain level of income that makes it so you can survive 
there's the difference between having, let's just say that number is $70,000 a year. The, the difference in happiness between the guy that's making $70,000 and $7 million and $700 million is not even noticeable. And I, I totally can make, you know, that makes total sense to me because once you have what you need, your happiness is more based on what it is you are and what you're doing as compared to how many more things you have. And for me, it's it's more being channeled now into what can be created with my limited light force in a way that makes me and the people I'm connected with feel more alive and healthy. Yeah, I mean, I think also that the thing, the thing really that that gives me the the sort of a sustained feeling of wellness, or you know, you can call it happiness, is when I'm giving back. You know, when I'm trying to get out of myself and my ego and my problems and what I need and all that kind of stuff. And I kind of try to get grounded and, and just be of service to somebody else, mm-hmm. which I'm not saying I always do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? I'm right there with you, man. You I, but when I do do that on the rare occasion, I generally feel really good. I feel better about myself. Mm-hmm. I feel, I feel a, a, a contentedness that, um, that seems more you know, meaningful to me personally than mm-hmm. I get that. other things. Which takes us to what I want to talk about now, which is how, you know, Common Ground came to be and, and you know, what the birth of this idea was and, and what you want to do with it now. So let's talk about that a little bit. Very cool. Yes, common ground is is a unique place and time, basically, and it, it is all about place at one level, but it's all also about the range of spirituality, emotion, and uh, life forces that happen when you're, you're connected with things that are you know based on the on values that are elemental to life experiences. So, I mean, that's a lot of you know sort of ambiguous stuff, but the reality is is I'm really trying to imagine a sustainable resource center that makes it easy for people to get connected to things that make their life more worth living. And for them to see a way to connect with a range of uh, activities that make them feel more willing to get engaged with community and and sort of a new way of doing business and, and other people in a way that sort of creates a very noticeable difference between the way things are traditionally being done you know i feel like there's so much apathy in western culture about getting involved in anything because we really don't feel like it's worth supporting community activities or government or a lot of nonprofits because we don't really feel like our time's being very well respected or we're getting much back for that investment i'm trying to imagine an environment that creates a sustainable path forward using food system as, as the foundation in a way that combats disease, creates economic opportunities, creates a better environment, and does a lot of things that make life healthier for the long term so that when we look back, that, that our kids can say, wow, that was something different, that was great. It doesn't, it's, it's not the path that it seems like the rest of the world is on, and it's standing out as something different. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, I think that people are starved for community, and, you know, by community, I mean, like, a real connectedness to your neighbor or your fellow man. And, and just speaking personally, <clears throat> living in Los Angeles, 
you know, we are very blessed and live in a really beautiful spot of the world. Um, and in many ways, it's really phenomenal. But the one thing that it really doesn't have or that I haven't experienced is any sense of community with my, you know, neighbors, my environment. And, you know, we don't really know our neighbors very well. And in like the closest town, which is Calabasas to where we live, there is no town. It's essentially an outdoor mall. You know, it's an outdoor mall with a road going through it. And that's it. And so people sort of convene at Starbucks to hang out and talk and that's really, I mean, Starbucks, quite honestly, has taken the place of the town square because there is no town square. And, you know, I don't know if this is good or bad. It's just this is the way that it is. And I think that for myself and my wife and my family, you know, one of the reasons that we were attracted to coming here was because we were lacking that sense of, you know, community and, and mutual support. And, you know, I, 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 we would remember days, there are days, you know, when one of our You know, we couldn't drop Trapper off at soccer practice because we were doing something else or another kid had to be somewhere else at that time or whatever. And just trying to find somebody to help us out to like, hey, can you, you know, can you get a ride home or can you find somebody who can give you a ride or, you know, even carpooling, something very simple and basic. It was like incredibly difficult, you know, and this is, I don't think that we're wired. I don't think that our DNA is is suited for this kind of lifestyle that we've created, the cul-de-sac lifestyle, where we're all kind of on our own. I mean, we, you know, mankind kind of habitated for eons in these villages where, you know, tasks were divided appropriately and everybody works together. And, you know, the Hillary Clinton, it takes a village or whatever, sounds super trite and stupid, but, you know, it's really true. And, And we don't live that way anymore, you know, unless you're in some remote Greek village or, you know, in some third world you know, country or something like that, where they're still rooted in, in traditions that we've gotten away with. And what I think is really cool about Common Ground and, and you personally is your interest in trying to recreate that. And I think we're in a very interesting time where people are fascinated and attracted to different ideas about how to live their lives and mm-hmm. lifestyle and, and a way of kind of getting back to something more primal like that of living communally. And at the same time, it's, it's bifurcated because you have that, which is sort of on a, um, this aspirational plane. And then you have the preppers and the militia people and all these sort of end of the world apocalyptic groups that they're kind of weird cousins because they, they're kind of doing the same thing, like, but they're just doing it in a, in a kind of a dark negative way and then there's the sort of new agers you know that are trying to do this in a in a kind of a hippie way you know you have people who are i think in some respects wanting the end of the world to come so that they can shoot their guns and you know tell everybody that they were right about what's happening and the currency isn't worth anything anymore and blah 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 and that makes for great reality tv because these characters are are larger than life and then on the other end of the spectrum it's you know it's the hippie free love you know kind of commune and so what you're doing is really grounded in something very neutral and sustainable and, and accessible for a normal human being to wrap their brain around, which is like, let's, let's figure out a better way of living that's more sustainable ecologically with our food, with our pooling our resources and, and finding a better way of living. And I think that those ideas are, are really powerful and, and interesting. Yeah, it's very ambiguous and fairly amorphous yeah. when you really look at at the highest level, but it, at, at a basic level, it's common ground. And the, the the reason we chose that name was 
basically all of us, when you look at you know the the range of values and issues that humans around the planet Earth deal with, have much more in common than we have that divides us. And I'd even go to the extreme of saying we really have you know I'd say ninety eight percent of the things we care most about are things that are are the kinds of things that are the same to people in the most remote parts of the world that are on the other side of the world from us. But yet, that said, we seem like when you look at the media and you look at the way things unfold, it's like we are constantly slicing and dicing and judging all these little pieces and parts that we don't have in common. You know, whether it's religious kind of stuff or it's other values that seem to be a little bit different than ours. But if you just stacked up the values that all humans have in common and what they need to live a healthy, basic life, you know, the the love for their family, the quality of food, air, water, the access to resources, all those things we know that are needed to create a high quality and evolving and growing human being, they're pretty simple. And Mm -hmm. so my thought was, is there a way that we can create a very fertile environment and create some, a demonstration environment that makes it so that the second people step on this property, they feel that energy. And, and it's a very supportive energy, but it's a very clear energy in a way that they can see how to engage and grow in their experience of themselves and the planet by doing certain things. And the, the three things we're starting with is creating a great organic garden, creating a really good you know, organic food service or, or restaurant, and then creating a market that supports that. And it may seem sort of redundant when you look at these similar restaurants and gardens and markets around the planet. But what makes these three unique is they're all bound by a vision that's basically saying, let's do what's best for this community in this place. And if we create and make the best soil, we make the best plants, and we make the best food from it, and we start working with the other uh, growers of food in the area and other people that can contribute products to the market. This becomes a hub for the creation and distribution of local products. And eventually we start, hopefully we'll start creating more products and training more people to learn and see the benefits of keeping money in the community rather than giving it to Walmart and 24 hours later only having four cents of every dollar left back on the island. In this scenario, when we grow our own food, make our own products and sell our own products, we maybe import, in some cases, maybe as little as 4% of the ingredients to make those products and we retain 96% in a community. And the multiplier effect, that's 24 times right there, is, is incredible when you look at it over time done right, you know, with a, with a vision that really brings people together rather than pulls them apart. Right. It's, it's closing the loop, right? It's closing the loop <clears throat> and keeping it within the community and supporting the community in doing, in doing so. And, and it's sustainable in its own right for doing that. And I think it's an incredible model. And I think it's hopefully, you know, a model that will not only thrive here, but will be replicable in its own, you know, versions and incarnations in, in different areas of the country and, and the world. And I really think it's the future. I mean, you know, you and I, we talk a lot about, uh, you know, the unsustainability of factory farming and not just in its implications for health, but in terms of, you know, the economy and, and, and the long-term vitality of the soil and, 
you know, the future of growing food and, and GMOs and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it brings all of that stuff into focus. Yeah, in, to me, the, the, the top four issues are the, the, econ- the economy. Basically, if we can maintain and create our own local economy rather than to be dependent on the U.S. dollar and a basket of other foreign currencies that are going to be constantly printing money to survive, that's a huge step. And that creates a lot of financial security and economic security for the community. Food security, you know, even though it's sort of for the general public not perceived to be much of an issue today because they can go to a grocery store and get food. But the reality is, is having 100% local, fresh, organic, local food that you're buying and growing here is compared to bringing food in from another part of the world that has a lot of toxins in it that gets redistributed in the environment. And the residual effects of that over time are dramatic. And fundamentally, it's creating disease, which gets to the number three issue, which is drugs. You know, supposedly 45% of the American public is on prescription drugs of some sort. If you have a healthy, local, fresh, organic fruit and vegetable diet, I would argue that you probably don't need 99% of those drugs. And if that's the case, what does that mean, again, to keeping money in the community and creating long-term productivity and overall health? Right. Preventative medicine starts with the plate. You got it. it. Starts Everything starts with the food. So, <clears throat> so those are, in my mind, huge issues. And, when, and the last one being the environment and in, in basically maintaining and supporting the, the health of the local environment rather than degrading it and destroying the ecosystems because of the way big business and, and government has traditionally looked at the, the use of resources. Those, when, you, when you just look at those top four issues, the, a new food system done right in the community, being supported by the community, and being educated or educating the community on the value of it is really huge over time. And I, I believe uh, the hypothesis that I'm describing there can be borne out in reality. And I, I really want to be able to, to prove that to myself and to prove that in a way that others say, shoot, I, I want that for my family. I want that for my community. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and what do you think, what are the obstacles? I mean, what are the impediments? And what are the, the, the walls that you've been bumping up against, whether they're political or social or, or... You know, the biggest wall for me personally is... is it's probably more of a personal issue than it is uh, an actual issue within the you know the the business one hundred and one issues of making it happen. And it's more like it's it's fair exchange. Basically, I don't want to feel like I'm doing it, and I'm I really need to be in service of the community and be in service of the people that need the, these things in the community in a way that the the business and the the financial sustainability and the economic feasibility of the product can sort of create and have a life of its own rather than feeling like it needs somebody like me to fund it or to to manage it at some level right i mean i think it can't it can only be truly healthy once it's completely self-supporting bingo bingo and so that's the trick so you're getting it to that place but you've been having to double down to get it to that place no doubt belief right and a lot of it you know as much as i've gone through the the learning curve and by no means at the end of it, of what it takes to do these kinds of things, the, the biggest the biggest lessons I've had to learn is dealing with my my own baggage that I bring as a result of being a kid that grew up in Dallas, Texas, you know, from 1970 and 80, and having a mom and dad that came from a certain place and their parents coming from a certain place that have instilled a set of values and <clears throat> excuse me ways of looking at life 
that I have subconsciously accepted and, and have made my reality. And to get rid of that baggage, more or less, so that I can have my own identity and look at things clearly and make healthier long-term decisions is really the piece that I'm trying to get clear enough on so that I can give and commit to different aspects of this in a way that really make it work naturally rather than with that sort of that, that push-pull thing that otherwise happens. Mm-hmm. But the ultimate sort of end game, for, or not end game, but the, the, the sort of ongoing result that you're looking for is to get to a place where common ground is a self-supporting community where the individuals who are either residing here or working here in a communal in a communal way are contributing in such a way that they're all able to support themselves and support the greater good by doing it, whether it's through harvesting the fields or creating food products or you know the you know managing and running the restaurant and the store, et cetera. But that it will be this ecosystem that will would would be able to operate in a healthy way without you having to be. Yeah. You know. Imagine an organism that mm-hmm. lives on its own. It's all it self organizes, and all I've maybe done is created a fertile environment for it to thrive. Mm-hmm. And and I'm not really telling it how to thrive. I'm just giving it the opportunity to be great. And 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 I really don't see this location as necessarily as a community in itself. I think it's more of a community in the uh, in the emotional and intellectual sense that people that that believe in these values are a community. And there's a number of people that care deeply about these values enough to continue to support the vision by contributing their time, buying the products, you know, showing up at meetings and saying yes, basically doing those range of things that support the values in a way that bring more people to it and make it naturally sustain itself. Mm-hmm. Do you have entrepreneur friends or friends from the, the, your former life who think you're crazy? Or Every one of them. <laughs> you know, what are they telling you? I, I, you know, I don't even bring it up to them. It's interesting. You know, it's like I don't really, this is not an area that I, I can really have a conversation with very many people with just because it is so relatively outside the scope of normal business. Mm -hmm. So the number of people that I could even describe what we've discussed to and then have a a conversation about a way to design and build that that self-organizing structure, for example, is very limited because it's like most people don't see the financial game. You know, it's it's really got to, more often than not, the beginning of this in this conversation ends with most people thinking, what's my return over what period of time and how much am I going to put in and how much I can get back? Mm-hmm. As soon as you go there, an energetic thing happens that moves it away from building the strongest, healthiest community to let's get the most dollar in and the least do- or the most dollar out in the shortest period of time. Well, it's two completely different paradigms. Really. Clearly, clearly. And that's sort of the test. Can this new paradigm tell a story that's it's extraordinary. And, and to see that it's supporting the emotional and personal and spiritual health of the individual in a way that anybody that comes in here, almost like that guy did to me, you know, 20 years ago, when he walked in my room and I sensed his peace and his confidence and his, his, his inner joy. Can other people feel that when they come here and see their reason to engage because of what it will mean to their health for the rest of their life? Mm-hmm. That's a beautiful thing. Totally. Yeah. That's worth fighting for, too. Well, what's, that's, you know, what a better thing to spend a human life trying to understand. Right. 
because you're right. There's a million other things that I could do to keep myself busy, and we all could. But where, if you're going to describe the kinds of things you could do that would have the most meaning and purpose in your life, what would they be? You know, they're they're unique to every individual. This is just an this is a piece of art that I've been trying to figure out and draw. Mm-hmm. So the other part of this equation that that uh, that's going on with common ground is this common ground media idea that you know I'm here to help you work on a little bit. And so I thought I'd let you, you know, give you an opportunity to talk a little bit about that and, you know, what you have in mind and, and, and where you see it going and, and what you want it to be. Sure, no problem. Uh, common Ground Media should stand in contrast to what I'd call traditional mainland or Western culture media from the standpoint that we wouldn't put things on it that would degrade the human condition. You know, what would be the purpose of putting things in a video format that people around the world would digest it would make them feel less of a human being and degrade their, their, their health and their happiness at some basic level or steal a part of their soul. I feel like standard Western culture media preys on the weaknesses of human beings at a basic level. And, and I, I would love to imagine a range of media that would be the kinds of things that would support our soul and support our happiness and support those things that we're great at and build those up and show us how to do those things better. You know, and I'm really sort of starting with sustainability one. And the way I'm describing it is sort of inner sustainability, those kind of things that come with personal growth and those things that make you healthy individually. And there's outer sustainability. It's the range of things we know you need to live as a human being at this place and time and be healthy. You know, it's the food, energy, water, housing kind of stuff. So I'm trying to put some stakes in the ground that people can understand that those, those two worlds in a way that just by seeing those reference points and those contexts that they can have the awarenesses they know they would need to be healthy. Mm-hmm. And, and if all they do is get that, they can have some deeper connection to a real world rather than what I'm calling this sort of this crazy imaginary world that the general media seems to to push in this these ideals of perfection that sort of makes everybody at some level feel less than human or less than good well and also is incredibly fear-based and salacious and <laughs> exaggerated right down in, the every, list. in every regard so yeah uh you know aspirational wellness related content is not test well in the Nielsen houses. It surely does not. And so that's, that's a good point, you know, and one, and you and I both know that just putting that information out, it's not going to create much of a draw. You know, it's not going to be the kind of things mainstream America is flocking to. Yeah. But what is the purpose? The purpose isn't to, you know, sell advertising on it. Clearly. And the purpose is to create something transformational. And you I got think, it. And I, and I think that, you know, the, the kind of primary marching order is to you know, stand in the light. I mean, I think it's more powerful to to be a, a magnet of attraction rather than promotion. You know? I'm, you're, so. you're spot on. I, I believe the work we can do can create an example of, of uh, demonstration environments around these things where people say, oh, they can do it. They did it. We can do it. I can do it. And we can open source that information in a way that makes it easy for people to see how to do it. Right, exactly. Because I think there, there's probably a lot of people who, who are listening who are thinking, 
well, that's great, you know, uh, but, you know, I don't, I don't live on a farm in Kauai and, you know, I have to be at the office at 7.30 every morning and, you know, I don't have this kind of flexibility and, and you know, so I, I would like to be more sustainable both inside and outside and the choices that I make and the way that I feel about myself, et cetera. But how can I do, you know, I, I don't know how to do that. How do I, you know, what am I supposed, are you telling me I'm supposed to quit my job and, you know, move to Hawaii well, and live know, in a they- tent? You know, like what can I, what are the, some of the things that somebody can latch onto to try to just begin to move in that direction or they, some tools. And I'm not, I'm not saying you have the answer immediately, right, I but know, I think, but I think I common ground media is a, is a sort of, is the idea is that this is a means of speaking to that. No doubt. No doubt. Uh, you know, I agree with what you said at a high level. Uh, but the reality is, is once you have the awareness around things you can do for personal growth, you, you can be anywhere on the planet earth and experience those things. I mean, meditation is a great example. Yoga is a good example. Eating good food is a good example. Walking in nature is a good example. These are not things the normal, you know, you know, the mainstream Western culture does every day, but they are transformative. And then equally, uh, on the other side of the coin for the outer sustainability piece, there's a range of things you can support in your community because you as a human being buy something Every day, almost, almost every day of your life, you're either buying some food, buying some gas, buying toilet paper, whatever it is. If you can consciously support the right things with that money and vote with your time and your money that way, that's slowly making big change happen. And this is a generational thing or maybe many generational things. It's not an end point tomorrow and the next day. This is not something that's going to change and, and be done in two quarters. This is going to take a lifetime. And, and it's going to be something that you'll experience in, throughout the course of your lifetime, hopefully in a way that adds value to every part of it. Yeah, we definitely, you know, I think the real vote in this day and age is the dollar. It's not the ballot box. Uh, and we have choices and we have domain over where that money gets spent. And like you said, every day we're spending money. All of us are spending money on one thing or another. And there are choices. There's never been more choices available to us in the way in which we spend those dollars. So I think that that's critical. And I think the other thing is it really does, you know, it's an inside job and it starts there. It has to start there because the other stuff uh, won't mean anything if you don't address the inside first. And, you know, that's a tough pill to swallow. You know, I mean, it, it was for me and it continues to be for me because I don't want to believe that, you know, meditation is the key or the solution that is going to help me address the other problems that I face in my life that, you know, I don't want to, it's been proven to me time and time again that when I am meditating or I am very uh, diligent about, you know, sort of my inner life or my spiritual life, that my life gets better. There's less drama in my life. The breaks tend to kind of break in my favor and, you know, things generally kind of work out, you know, maybe not the way I expected them to or predicted them to, but my life is easier. You know, I'm calmer, I'm more grounded and, uh, and, and I don't seem to have as many problems or the problems that I have are more easily managed and and sort of navigated. Mm -hmm, And, mm -hmm. And that's been demonstrated to me countless times in my life. And yet still, I want to think, I don't need that anymore. That's not the answer. The answer is, if I can just get that thing, you know, I want to, I want to, I need the I'll new, be I happier need, when yeah, I do the that iPhone thing. Five, the iPhone 5 came out. It's got, right. it's got a better camera, <laughs> you know. Or what, so, 
you know, that is the human, that, that's the human condition, you know, that, that is. That we want to be slightly better than the, the person next to us in a lot of ways. Or just, or, or I don't even know if it's, yes, it's that, but it's also just, you know, this sort of insatiable need and belief that like, that outside circumstances are the solution to our right, problem. And right, I, I right. think that that is. Or when I get to this certain thing or place and time, I, that is when I'm going to be happy. I mean, right. I mean, or I if, think I le- if I move my, if I move from my house or my town to this other place, then everything's going to. Or be when better. I retire, when I get to be 76 or whatever, 66, and I retire, then I will be happy. In the meantime, well, that's I'm, the greatest lunacy of Western society, it's crazy, in my opinion. But maybe not the greatest, but <laughs> that's a big one. That's a big one, but. Yeah, I mean, you're living proof. I mean, you're somebody who has sort of, you know, had an extraordinary life experience to this point and has had the luxury of being able to see what it would be like, you know, to walk in the shoes of something that, you know, most people kind of aspire to. I mean, our culture, we all like, you know, we're going to hit it rich and then everything's going to be good or whatever. And, and you've been in that place. You've, you've felt the emotions that, that come along with that. And uh, have made you know the choice to be here rather than somewhere else, and and to be sitting here and talking about your interior life. You know, I think that speaks to that that speaks to a very strong character. Well, and you know, I think that you know, you, obviously, you've been through similar processes, and I think it's really hard for me or anybody to really put themselves in vulnerable positions. We don't we don't like to not know. We don't like to look inside ourselves. We don't like to be uncomfortable at all. At all. You know, and that's the reason we, we do all those things to distract us. You know, when I look at the way I was living before I moved out here and, and just the, the manicness of a normal day and the, and the consistent routines that were all just sort of subconsciously ingrained in me and how I considered that a fulfilling life in relation to the range of things I've come to know that are the experiences in life that can make life more fulfilling it's amazing, you know, and I mean, it's not surprising at a basic level once you've been able to step far enough back to have perspective. And I think that's sort of the hope for, for CG Media is to begin telling some of those stories in a way that other people can get them. And I think one aspect of that, because I agree with what we were talking earlier, a lot of the, the context that we were talking about, sustainability, inner and outer, is not the kind of things that people are going to gravitate to in numbers to learn because it's just not the kind of information, generally speaking, unless it's done in a really entertaining way, that's going to make people excited. And the, the way I see uh, the answer to that being is working with artists like yourself and others that have a message that resonates well and to support them in a way that their message can get out and, and let that take on a life of its own, just in, in, in some way similar to what we're trying to do at Common Ground. Mm-hmm. You know, as much as I'm hoping we can create a, a fertile environment for the most fantastic food and a range of products that support the community here, I would love to imagine that we can create a, a range of technological products and a range of uh, services that support artists in a way that they can become really valued in the digital age. And they can be able to do their best work and not worry about the range of things they've been having to deal with up to this point. You know, I mean, when you just look at music as an example of how much what a musician would make 20 years ago and how hard it is for him or her to make a living in the online world today. Yeah, it's crazy. We were just talking about this the other day and, and Tyler <clears throat> had sent uh, my wife and I an article uh, that was written by a musician. Who was that, Tyler, that wrote that? Was One of the dudes from Galaxy 500. From Galaxy 500, yeah. Because there's this, con- this concept that 
with Pandora and Spotify that now finally musicians are, are getting paid because it's a paid subscription. And so, oh, I pay my $10 a month for Spotify and, and you know, that money's going, you know, a portion of that money is going back to the artists that I listen to when I play my playlists or what have you. And this band wrote an article and said their song, one of, I think their, their song had been played 75,000 times uh, over a period of, how long was it? Was it just like a couple months or something like that? And the, their royalty check was like a couple, bu- a couple yeah. dollars, yeah. not per, per play, for that 75,000 plays. Like it was literally like five bucks or something like that. So it's not working, you know, it's not, it's not working for the artist. And, you know, it's this, this, incredible period of time in which every artist, every creator, every creative person has the world at their disposal to, to share and distribute their own product. Um, but yet there's, you know, how do you get the message out? How do, how do you yeah, connect with your audience and how do you do it in a way that is, that is sort of sustainable and self-supporting for you and fair, quite honestly? Yeah, I think the main issue when I look at it is... Uh most of the artists nowadays are run by managers that are still in a more of a traditional way of looking at business. It's almost the old record label way of doing things as compared to really recognizing the value and the values of the digital age. I mean, if you're an artist today and, and you're, you know, you're really doing great, you're basically, generally speaking, having a relationship with iTunes where they take the majority of what they create and you get a fraction of it and you hope to market it in an incredible way that you continue to maintain your right to your fraction of that fraction. As compared to looking at it from a different perspective, right now, iTunes in that scenario has its relationship with your audience. So you have created an audience for iTunes that they're deciding how much you as an artist are going to get paid. Mm -hmm. Flip that around. I mean, you know, Tom Petty's a great example. How many people, or Jack Johnson, or any, any well-known artist, they have, let's just say, 15 to 100,000 people, in some cases, see an event of theirs. How many of those people that went to see, you know, Tom Petty out of that 15,000, can Tom Petty get in touch with tomorrow afternoon? Probably not one of them. Not, mm-hmm. not many of them. You know, if he really wanted to, he should be able to push one button and get to every one of those 15,000 people in whatever way they most readily wanted to hear from Tom Petty, whether it was a phone call, a text message, or uh, and a podcast, or an email, go right down the list. And people should be able to, you know, in some way, artists should be able to control the access, in some way, manage the monetization of the audience they create over an extended period of time. Because right now, an artist... In, in the iTunes scenario we described, they download one song and they go on to the next. What you should be saying to iTunes is, I got that guy to you one time and now he's bought all this other stuff and I should get the residual value of every time he buys anything else from iTunes. Instead, you gave me a fraction of a fraction and I created a customer for, for who knows, years or longer than that. And you got all his information that shows what he likes and doesn't like. And you're marking him all this other stuff. Right, who's, who's really benefiting. So here? why don't I take that in-house and work with an entity, like possibly something like a CG Media, that is really working more on the, the artist's beh- behalf. To say, Mr. Artist, you create this net 
of a range of whatever, tens of thousands or millions of relationships, and we'll give you the value of those relationships over an indefinite period of time. As long as those guys or people are buying something from the network, you're getting something for it. Right. It's, it's working as an ally for the artist. Bingo. Because, <clears throat> you know, there's, there's, of course, the example of Radiohead that released their album on their website and kind of circumnavigated iTunes altogether and did it their own way. And you're seeing that in other, in other mediums, too. Like Louis C.K. released his comedy album you know, on his website. And, and other people that have audiences are able to leverage their own audiences and, and circumnavigate that system. But most of them have achieved their sort of notoriety or have those audiences as a result of their success through more traditional avenues of media. I mean, Radiohead, you know, was on a label that, you know, pushed them and got them to a certain place that allowed them to have this audience and et cetera. And Louis C.K. is on a television show where, you know, millions of people get to see him. So he's able to build and develop his audience, but now he can release his comedy album, not on HBO, but do it himself and, and completely control that. So, but if you're not Radiohead and if you're not Louis C.K. Or, or one of these handful of other people that have that kind of audience, you need somebody to help you develop your audience that is going to be artist friendly as opposed to, you know, something like iTunes that really isn't interested in that. They're just interested in, in the reasons that you just articulated. Mm-hmm. I think you're spot on. You know, I, I would, whether it's CG Media or whatever entity, the bottom line, there's a range of web tools out there. The artists should really find the marketing entity, you know, a marketer, hopefully an individual that totally believes in them, that gets the range of digital tools that are out there. And they're creating those, those the range of relationships that Radiohead uh, has. You know, there's a range of sponsors, there's a range of appearances, there's a range of events, there's a, a range of stuff that a great marketing company using online media and others can really efficiently and at low cost navigate. Uh, on behalf of the artist in a way that adds tremendous value. And that's the piece that I'm, I'm wanting to get my head around and do in a way that really card, cultivates large numbers of uh, fans for artists over an extended period of time in a really thoughtful, trusted way. And the other piece of the equation that you haven't even gotten into yet, which I think is the piece, is the idea of of, of giving back. That every sort of transaction that would take place in this environment involves giving back to support local communities, right, local agriculture, right. or a nonprofit or charity of that artist's choice. So it's really embracing this new, you know, we're talking about paradigms, and this really is a new paradigm of business that's finally being recognized and embraced by, you know, traditional business, which is this idea of building in the nonprofit or the giving back into the actual business plan. So you have these companies like Ethos Water or Tom Shoes or Warby Parker, which made my glasses, where for everything you buy, somebody's getting something back out mm-hmm. of that. And mm-hmm. I think that that is really an amazing uh, model. And it's so great to see those companies doing so well. And I think that that's really the future of business. I agree. And I, think I that agree. That, because it's, a, it's also, a, it's not just the giving back, it's about involving the consumer uh, and, and understanding that their dollar is a vote and what are they voting for. And mm-hmm. that vote is going towards you know, a good product at a fair price where a portion of that is, is going back to support something that, that is important to the company and important to the consumer who's voting with that dollar. Yeah, I, I think there's been a huge, and this is in market research information over the last like 10 years, 
like I want to say, I don't know the exact numbers, but roughly 40% of the consumers out there are now basing their buying decisions on the on what they perceive the ethics and the business, uh, uh, you know, Value morals or, or values yeah. of the brand to be. And if that's the case, and if we, in some way, through the through our efforts, can create relationships with consumers in a way that they understand and they actually see through a positive feedback loop that the nonprofits are being not only uh, well-funded, but they're actually seeing programs take place and that they're seeing the, the economics of that really make sense so that it's not going through overheaded administration, but like 95 or 99 cents out of every dollar actually makes a program happen. That's huge. And that's what I'm wanting to envision. So rather than going to pay X to see, you know, X, Y, Z, you know, great, great performer, you're, you're giving maybe 50% of the online income to a, a nonprofit that goes straight into a program that you really want to see happen. You know, in our case, it might be training people to do green jobs or, you know, organic food preparation in some way or feeding kids at the local skate park because, we found out that a lot of the kids at the local skate park you know, on weekends don't have any food to eat. But as an example, or those are great examples of the kinds of things that when it's leveraged and really now the nonprofit is cultivating these relationships rather than the artist creating these relationships, for me as an individual, I would feel much better seeing that because I, I want to see the, the artist do well, but I would love to see the things he cares about do great. Right, and then also creating a relationship between the end user or the customer or consumer with the results of where that dollar went. Bingo. You know what I mean? Because I think that we're, we're, we're in a disconnect with you know, giving right now in many ways where there are these behemoth charities and you know, it's sort of like all right, you know, Hurricane Sandy hits, it's you know, give, to the, give to the Red Cross or give, and, and not to say there's anything wrong with that, that's great. You know, it's sort of like how do we give back and support what's going on, but then you have no idea what happens with that money. And, and you can go online and go to Charity Watch and find out which the good ones are or the bad ones are and how much spend too much on their you know, overhead, et cetera. But you know, who has time for that? But I think what's, what, what's important and what I think is a big part of the new model of, of giving and nonprofits is really creating a connection um, between the person who is donating that dollar and then what actually happens. Like, like engaging them in the chain of command or, or the, the, chain, the, the sort of chain of custody of that dollar all the way to where it ultimately gets spent and the effect of that spending. Bingo. On the, yeah, on to actually first. to have a real-time or close to real-time feedback loop. So if we get 50,000 people to pay three bucks to see an online event and a buck 50 out of that 50,000 goes to feed the kids, 50,000 times a buck 50 is what, 75,000 buys X number of meals in some way that you might visually in video form see delivered and then actually maybe even be able to interview some of the kids that have been eating there for six months saying this is what it's meant to my life and this is the things that have changed as a result of this. Right. And that's huge. And that's mm-hmm. the kind of change at a really systemic level that makes me excited. You got big plans, Mr. J. <laughs> How are you going to make all that happen? <laughs> Uh, just patience and time. Patience yeah. and time. Patience is a tough one. Oh, no kidding. That's the hardest one for, for anybody that's been in the tech world because when you do tech stuff, it happens in 10 minutes, you know, right. or as long as it takes you <clears throat> to do it. 
Whereas in, in the organic gardening world, it doesn't quite work that way. <laughs> You're not creating Instagram here, not, right? Not, not exactly. Yeah. This is There's a longer uh, incubation period physically many. and uh, metaphysically, right? Yes, Very yes. Very cool. All right, well, we should probably wrap this up here, but uh, Chris J., you're an inspiration. Right back at you. You're a fascinating guy. It's an honor to know you and, uh, and to be here and to, to talk to you and to be working on some interesting stuff with you. So thanks a lot, man. Well, it's the fun it's stuff. to be here, yeah. Thanks yeah, for making yeah. it happen. Thanks for taking the time to sit down and talk to you. I think people are going to really dig, dig your message. So Perfect. Bring it. Cool. So that is episode two, everybody. How long did we go here? Whoa. An hour and 46. That's pretty cool. So um, I have some other cool guests lined up. I'm going to try to do this podcast two or three times a week. And like I said, we're going to try to uh, jerry-rig the video in the the live stream and and maybe do some interactive stuff. So I'll keep you posted on that. Uh, Most importantly, if you want to learn more about what's going on uh, with Chris and Common Ground, Check out Common Ground online. Uh, the website is cgkawaii.net. Um, and I'm sure if you Google Common Ground or Chris or whatever, you could probably come up with some interesting stuff about what's going on there. And I will continue to keep you posted on, on the developments with uh, Common Ground Media and the stuff that we're working on. It's, it's some really exciting, cool stuff. So without further ado, we'll wrap it up. Uh, again, <clears throat> if you want to support the podcast just uh, and you've enjoyed this, Tell a friend, help get the word out. Uh, early subscribers uh, would be great to have since we're just launching this thing. And uh, if you want to support us financially, don't send us money, but click the uh, Amazon banner ad on richroll.com um, if you're going to be buying something on Amazon anyway. And that'll throw a couple bucks in our pot and help keep this thing going. So anyway, that's it. Thanks a lot. And uh, until next time, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Chris.